dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, this week's episode is brought to you by Blue Vine. We'll hear more about them in a little bit. But before before we get to today's topic, first of all, I want to say thank you to everybody who has subscribed since the uh, the new regime has come in on Monday with the sort of pay for membership stuff and all the rest. The initial numbers are great. If we had told even our investors that we would be revenue positive um, with by at this point in this startup cycle, uh, they would have laughed at us. But we are actually cash flow positive right now and have been, except for one brief dip when we you know made the mistake of hiring David French. Um, so thank you to everybody who supports uh, the dispatch. It means uh, so much to us, and uh, it's going to be an uphill struggle. Um, but we think if we have you guys along for the ride, we'll make it. Um, all of that said, I also want to warn listeners, uh, I don't know that we can avoid the explicit rating, rating on today's podcast, nor do I think we can avoid speaking ill of Donald Trump. And I know these two things annoy some listeners. So if you're, if you're put off by bawdy, raucous, uh, blue language, which I'll try to keep to a minimum, but I just, I know these people and I can't make any promises. Uh, maybe you should skip this one. Definitely shouldn't play with kids in the car. Um, and if you think that I am often way too anti-Trump and that I can't move away from it, uh, this is probably a good one to skip too. All right. With those disclosures, um, I'm very excited to have, uh, two writers that I think are, um, a, a, a force for good in the world and their writing and maybe not in every other aspect of their lives. Um, we have Lachlan Marquet, yep. who I only learned very recently is not Marky. Yeah. Um, many others. <laughs> and I'm going to struggle with this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Asawin Swissbang? How do you, how do, you do it? Subsang. Subsang. It's, Subsang. It's very Thai. Break it down into the syllables for me. Asawin, last name, Subsang. Okay. Uh, and, ju- and just call me Swin. Yeah, and everyone calls you Swin, so that's what I'm going to do. Um, but I felt it was my journalistic obligation to try. Thank you so much. Okay, so you guys have written, uh, you guys are both at the Daily Beast. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a little bit country, you're a little bit rock and roll, or maybe it's the other way around, or you're Bert, you're Ernie, I can't keep these things straight. But totally. you're uh, men of the left in the broad brushstrokes. Um, I think if you really drilled me down on the technicalities, I'd be a social democrat. Okay. And and Lachlan, you come from more or less my tribe yeah. of of conservative, um, leaning libertarian, but somewhat disillusioned and cutting yourself a lot lately. <laughs> That's fair. Okay, so you guys wrote "Sinking in the Swamp: How Trump's Minions and Misfits Poisoned Washington." Um, I'm gonna have one criticism up front, which I think is entirely valid, and I will defend at all fronts. Um, uh, and I I have to admit, I was flatly shocked by this. Um, there is no index. This and, is not the first time we've heard this. In, in, a, in a book like this, where all you're doing is holding paper against various <laughs> personalities, and in a town like this, where most people, first thing they do is look up themselves in the index. Not to have an index seems to me a bit of malpractice. But now they can just go into Google Books uh-huh. and dump in their name. Yeah, it's easier than ever to find your name if you want to. But I will say that one of the funnier reactions we've had to the book was it was actually Swin who was speaking to a uh, fairly senior Trump official who was complaining that uh, he wasn't given a, a 
chance to comment or an advanced look at some of the stuff in the book. And Swin explained that, well, everyone who's mentioned in the book about whom there's new reporting was contacted beforehand. You are not in the book, so we didn't call you. And then if I remember the story as it was recounted correctly, he there was sort of a pause for a few seconds and he goes, what the hell do you mean I'm not in the book? <laughs> <laughs> Am I not important enough? Um, so it, 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 yes, it does inspire some frustration, but not always for the reasons you'd imagine. Okay, so one of the reasons why this book is sort of my um, my spirit animal is, um, as you guys know, I am not a fully on the on board the Trump train kind of guy, right? And, no, um, <laughs> you know, and I hear, I want to be, I don't want to exaggerate, hourly. I was going to say every minute, but sometimes I'm not near my Twitter feed. Um, that I'm a grifter, that I'm doing it for the money, that I'm part of the swamp. The swamp rejects a reformer like Donald Trump and all these kinds of things. And it makes me feel like I'm taking crazy pills because up close, the idea that Donald Trump is draining the swamp is batshit crazy. Um, that is basically the case that you guys make. So why don't we start there? How goes the draining the swamp process? So the the underlying, I guess, unspoken tacit thesis of the book is that um, if you voted for Donald Trump because you hated the post-war liberal status quo, neoliberal status quo, I guess, um, then you're probably pretty satisfied with how the swamp is being drained. The problem is that Donald Trump sort of supplanted one swamp for another um, and, you know, in his quest to remake the, the character and makeup of the American government, brought with him this coterie of hangers-on um, who would never have been elevated to the positions they have been in any other administration, um, who've, who sort of brought with them their own new version, crazy, bizarre, uh, very often incompetent version of the swamp. Um, and the example I go back to a lot in sort of explaining that is this Ukraine impeachment stuff. Um, the the Hunter Biden uh, allegations at the center of all that, I think it's very difficult for any honest observer to conclude that that is not corrupt, sure. not swampy, uh, getting 50 grand a month because your your father is the vice president. It's corrupt in the same way that like everything in Washington is and has been corrupt for decades now. It's this soft corruption that sort of pervades the place. Donald Trump's response to it is this very new Trumpian, explicit, in-your-face form of corruption whereby the, the mechanisms of the American government are weaponized against the president's perceived political adversaries. So if you're a Trump supporter, you might very well conclude that the second part of that is preferable to the first part of it. Um, I would politely disagree, but I think it's, it's you know, you, you can't say that uh, corruption has been, you know, eliminated in Donald Trump's Washington. It's just this very sort of different brand of it. Right. And we would also politely, or in my case, very impolitely disagree that it's a choice between the two when it comes to President Trump. He has merged the two. He has not drained a lick of the actual influence industry or legal corruption that so many Americans hate or are tired about reading or hearing about in Washington. Right, I was going to say, at all. Lachlan's case was that he replaced one form of corruption with another, and you're making the case, which, I, which it seems to me is that it's additive, not there's not a replacement thing going on. Yeah, here. replace may have been a too strong a term. I think his brand is inextricably tied with a very different type of corruption than the usual. Dom the, exactly. Okay, yeah. fair enough. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, no, not at all. It, but if you are a political supporter of Donald Trump's and you are 
essentially looking to be lied to about this and to accept your lie. Okay, you hear that he's draining the swamp. He's not. You think he's a good old reformer just for saying it. And then you aren't plugged into it 24-7 in the same way politics addled people like you or I are. Mm. So you're not noticing that swamp is not gone. He has filled the swamp with his own Trumpian swamp creatures on top of all the other liberals and conservatives who are already there thriving, making a buck off the American people and American industry. And also at the same time, as Lachlan astutely pointed out, there's this really almost Eastern European classic kind of um, weaponizing the government against your own personal and political enemies, self-corruptions, that he's just layered on very explicitly and very publicly on top of that. So sort of the thesis of our book, among other things, is that if you're talking about the corruption of Trump's Washington, it is a continuation of the old guard and a um, 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 expansion of it, not not a cure or or even a slight fix by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. So I mean, like, I mean, to, to get to the crazy pill part, um, when impeachment was going on, we heard often that um, President Trump had to look into the Biden stuff because he was obligated to under the Constitution to investigate that the laws are faithfully executed. And moreover, it was part of Donald Trump's sweeping mandate to tackle corruption wherever he finds it, right? And then what I love about it is that almost the second impeachment's over, he's like, okay, first of all, I'm going to fire all these people in the White House who were inconvenient to me. And um, I'm going to openly lobby the attorney general to uh, give Roger Stone a pass. Because as we know, anybody who's passionately concerned with fighting corruption really wants to make sure that Roger Stone gets a fair deal. <laughs> um, and so, um, uh, but when you talk to these people, right, when you presumably people are making the positive case for Trump to you from time to time, right? That's part of your job is to have to listen to that stuff. Um, what is the example that they bring up that is the best example of them actually draining the swamp or fighting corruption in some way. I mean, I don't think the case for Trump is that he's drained. I mean, if someone, if you're talking to an honest Trump supporter, um, the case f- isn't that he's drained the swamp. It's that he's, um, I mean, essentially that he's taking it to the libs and that and that he's accomplishing things that no other Republican. I was talking to a, a veteran Republican uh, staffer recently, doesn't work in the administration, but he's an ally who didn't vote for Trump in 2016 and despised him at the time and is now going to vote for him uh, Mm -hmm. in 2020. And, you know, he was saying things like, you know, a a President Rubio or even a President Cruz never would have moved the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, never would have withdrawn from the Paris Accords, um, you know, maybe wouldn't have even gotten this tax bill through. And that Trump, just by virtue of his you know, that that particular style that feeds this this type of overt corruption we're talking about is just a really effective at getting this Republican agenda through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's hard to it's hard to deny that, like, he succeeded in remaking the American judiciary in a very conservative direction and in a direction that even, you know, a lot of his critics uh, uh, think is a, a positive, a lot of his Republican critics. Um, so, you know, the, the case for him is not that he's this squeaky clean reformer. 
It's that he, by simple brute force, he's been able to like enact policies that that few other Republicans would have been able to. Right. The, or or had the pol- political will to do it. I should say the number of conservative activists, people who work in Donald Trump's administration, even his White House, who will come up to us and say, "Well." I wasn't enthusiastic about voting for him in the general in 2016, or I didn't vote for him, or I was a Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio supporter during the 2016 primary. But during this first term, Trump has earned my support. He's earned my vote. I will proudly vote for him in 2020. It's a pretty massive chunk of people who we've talked to and deal with on a fairly uh, regular basis in Washington, D.C. I guess my point to that, and I'm not sure if Lachlan would entirely agree with me, is that that was entirely predictable. Mm-hmm. All of these people who are trying to tell us whether they're sources or, or uh, casual acquaintances or whatever who work in, shall we say, the swamp, mm-hmm. who now say, oh, oh, I was skeptical of Trump before, but, I, but I'm a hardened conservative who is now all in for Trump and MAGA. Uh, to me, I never thought that wasn't going to be the case for the vast majority of professional conservatives, mm-hmm. um, particularly those working in Washington, D.C. Of course that was going to be the case. As for people working in D.C. in this in this sordid business of ours and also at the country at large, Republican voters vote Republican. They support Republican presidents. So um, – and I don't think you need to be told, Jonah, about how much of an outlier you are at this point. <laughs> I'm told constantly. So, <laughs> so like – In fact, Larry O'Connor has a new piece out today talking about what an outlier I'm in. Anyway, <laughs> go on. <laughs> oh, no. J- just that um, – of, of course that so much of the sub- GOP has been subsumed into Trumpism and vice versa. That was always going to happen if he was elected as a Republican president with a Republican Congress. Yeah. So, I mean, to, to that point, you'll be heartened – to know that at least I think if Bernie Sanders is elected president, you will get the social democracy that you so crave and that everybody will be like, remember that scene in Stripes where Bill Murray says, and if you haven't seen Stripes, just don't tell me, um, <laughs> where Bill Murray says to his girlfriend who complains about him playing Tito Puente albums all day long, uh, someday Tito Puente is going to die and you're going to be like, I've listened to him all my life and I loved his stuff, right? If Bernie wins... In the same way we got all these people who are like all of a sudden retroactive lifelong nationalists, but we're never talking about nationalism for 20 years. We're going to have all sorts of people saying, well, I was always really a socialist, but, you know, um, because of this permission structure and herd mentality thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're moving far afield and we can come back to that if you like. But, um, okay, so let's go through some of the main, you know, the various coprophagic phylums of Trump world. And for listeners who don't know, coprophagic means uh, feces eating. Um, so, uh, and that of course brings to mind Corey Lewandowski. Um, so, um, how is, uh, how's Corey made out in the Trump years? So he's presented, uh, in the book as sort of emblematic of a lot of, not just emblematic, but like the archetype of a lot of the, um, trends and sort of forces we're describing. Um, of course, Trump's first campaign manager was sort of the id on the campaign, uh, was fired after um, assaulting a, a reporter at Breitbart of all outlets, um, and just became sort of generally reviled among everyone who wasn't his like immediate ally uh, in in the Trump universe. Um, 
there's actually been great new details on him released as more of the interview transcripts from the Mueller investigation come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe it was uh, it was the Rick Gates interview where he talked about like the relationship between Lewandowski and Paul Manafort and how when Paul Manafort came on, all of a sudden there was this like patina of competence on the Trump campaign. Like they were counting delegates and they were, you know, they, they were building a ground game and, and looking towards the convention and fending off sort of establishment attacks. Um, and everyone was like, oh, wow, this is what like a competent campaign manager does. And of course, Lewandowski you know, <laughs> despised Manafort because he was making him look bad. Um, so, you know, he embodies sort of the the general incompetence in that respect. But also, of course, he lost out on a White House position due largely to the um, to the many enemies he had made in the president's orbit. That didn't mean he he didn't retain a lot of influence. He still speaks with the president, but he's been consistent. He'll he'll deny up and down that he ever wanted a White House job. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, he's virtually the only one who will deny that. Um, <laughs> and in, <laughs> instead, he went into like the influence game, and he was never a registered lobbyist. And again, he will deny up and down that he you know is cashing in on his relationship with the president. He very clearly is, um, and he's one of these Trump whisperers who. Um, you know, I'm fascinated by this universe of people. You know, with every administration, there's this um, the, this uh, uh, new sort of element to the influence industry in Washington that is sort of tailor-made to that particular administration, very often comprised of people who worked for the, the, the person now in office. I think more so than basically any prior administration, there's this subgroup of influencers in the Trump era that is so entirely dependent on their ability to read and influence Donald Trump that when Donald Trump is out of office, they're going to be out of a job. Um, yeah, and it, they're kind of like the birds that eat the viscera out between the teeth of crocodiles' mouths, right? You know, and like <laughs> if, it, if they didn't have that food supply, right. you know, they didn't have like the crocodile, is, they would starve. You he's know? so unique of a character, and um, and he so baffled Washington, and so few people really understood him or understood how to talk uh, to him or to his supporters that, like, that was an extremely valuable commodity in early 2017, and Corey Lewandowski could provide it. And money provided, he did. Yeah. And um, one of the ways we write about him in the book um, is that, okay, look, you can make the argument that everybody you deal with in prominent position in Trump world is going to be a prolific, shameless liar. Mm-hmm. Okay, you can start with that baseline of uh, argument, which also I would argue as a political reporter you should make for any administration, sure. Republican or Democrat. They're like It's packed with liars. Just assume everybody's lying and report the kernel of truth that you cross-reference in the middle. But with a figure such as Corey Lewandowski, there's something turbocharged about it that he really does, even in a universe as littered with the just serial liars in the way that the Trump universe is. He really does rank as maybe the in the top one, top two, maybe top two and a half. Mm-hmm. And it got to the point where we told him directly in 2017, uh, at, at some point, I think it was early... Um, 2017 in the first year of the Trump era that, okay, look, man, if we're talking, it has to be on the record. We will not be going off the record and we sure as shit will not be allowing you to be an anonymous source Mm -hmm. or anything because you have proven yourself to us and to so many others to be such a goddamn liar Mm -hmm. that we, okay, when we look at ourselves as political reporters in the morning while we're shaving, we have to um, um, maintain at least a modicum of self-respect. Yeah. One of the ways we're going to do that is for people like you, we are not 
according you that good faith that you would never accord us if our lives literally depended the on The only it. other person that that's the case for uh, consistently is Roger Stone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who, yeah. And Corey and Roger happen to be sworn enemies. Yeah. All right, so yeah, let, let's talk about it for the two seconds, um, and then I want to get a little more meta. But um, in the... On the island of misfit toys, right, which I guess was originally Bannon's phrase, yeah. um, and you know, for a guy with hooves, he's actually can turn a phrase. And um, uh, there are coalitions and alignments, and it's like high school, right? I mean, like, who's at what table? Like, who likes who inside this administration or in the grander orbit? And also, as part of that. Let's stipulate that all politicians and flacks and hacks lie, right? Um, who in the administration strikes you as someone who tries pretty hard not to lie? Because, I mean, that sort of seems to me the more distinctive feature of somebody than huh. the other way around. Well, I, so I think um, one of my favorite characters in the White House uh, is Mick Mulvaney. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he, I mean, he demonstrate he demonstrated his honesty for better or worse when he, you know, held that press conference a few months ago and was like, yeah, there was a quid pro quo. There are always quid pro quos. Right. Um, so I don't know that, that jumped out at me as, you know, I, I've always thought he's really good at handling the press. Um, and he, he does a lot and I think he should do more in terms of speaking to the press because he's a great spokesman for the white house. Um, so, you know, he's one who I've never found to be like a, you know, serially dishonest person. Yeah. Um, he was also... I've always gotten along with him personally. Yeah, he, he's, he's a nice guy. He's very smart. Um, he also, you know, seems to be like the first to admit that he just sort of abandoned everything that he believed <laughs> when he was elected to Congress yeah. when he went and worked for this White House. Um, but he's very upfront about that, so you can't really fault him for... Well, you can fault him for it, but for different reasons. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. He's one that jumps out at me. Um, Mike Pence's chief of staff, who was who is Trump's former legislative affairs director, right. uh, Mark Short, right. who is a veteran of the Coke empire. Um, and, and we've said this before, where um, um, he speaks on the record a lot, and he's, you know, he's he seems to be a straight shooter mm-hmm. to us. And at the end of the day, when you're dealing with the broader Trump orbit, um, that's the best you can hope for, I, right. I guess. He he he's not someone who I would put in the uh, uh, in the uh, taxonomy of shameless, prolific, blood spitting liar. Right. Okay. Um, so uh, that's f- faint praise. Uh, well, high, <laughs> high praise when I'm talking about Trump. <laughs> no, 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 it's yeah. it's as, as I like to say, it's it's like saying the best gas station sushi in Alabama. It's saying something. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So. Uh, and on the so what are the clicks? Like who gets along with who? Because like when you tell people that that Lewandowski and Stone hate each other, you know, it doesn't intuitively make sense because they don't believe in anything. So why would you? They believe in themselves. Yeah, I guess that's right. So who? What are the other clicks? I mean, like who? Who? Who's Kellyanne aligned with? For example, Kellyanne's aligned with Kellyanne. Yeah, yeah. Does um, she do? Does she do anything? Is she just? A comms person who comes out to do talking head stuff, or does she have any she, management role? She advises the president directly. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think she's, uh-huh. she's pretty. Is that a euphemism? <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. I want to be very. Well, I, I didn't mean it that kind of way. I know Kellyanne. I wouldn't want to suggest that. I just meant like, is her job to basically talk nice to the president, and that's about it. I mean, does she have any? Well, an interesting thing about the Trump White House is, uh, 
is that the job titles are oftentimes just the job titles. You look at someone like Sarah Huckabee Sanders, his former White House press secretary. By the end of her tenure there, she was – White House press secretary kind of undersold her job. She was – an extremely close confidant of the president who he would ask for her advice on any number of not just comms but policy mm. issues. Like if he was talking about bombing Syria, uh, he he would actively seek out her I- advice. That's great. That's just great. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's great. You know. So it's, it's kind of um, – and in the other direction – um, and this point has been made to me by numerous um, uh, Trump administration officials and veterans of the administration who say that a weird thing is that basically everything in the Trump White House is a comms job, whether you yeah. want it to be or not. Yeah. Like we were talking about Mark Short a uh, moment earlier, like when he was Trump's uh, director of legislative affairs, he was on TV all the time selling the president's messaging. Yeah. And what can, can you even name Obama's legislative affairs director? I would recognize the name if you told it to me. But but can you <laughs> but even no, can you no. picture the man or woman yeah, on no, like no, a TV screen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, it was much easier to delineate the well, I should say the White House was much more factional at the beginning. Right. Um, the Bananistas versus the McMasters right. is Yeah, and the, there was the RNC contingent and there was the campaign contingent and they hated each other. Um, although the, there would always be weird alliances like Kushner and Bannon. Uh-huh. And uh, anyway, um, th- it was largely a product of, um, you know, so th- going back to what I was saying earlier about Trump sort of bringing in his own coterie of people, um, you combine that with the president's um, really amazing and very often self-destructive insistence on personal loyalty. Uh-huh. Um, and you were, you, I mean, this is the reason that he was really starving for staff at the outset of his administration is I actually had multiple friends who um, applied for jobs in the administration, not even in the White House, got a significant way through the vetting process. And then someone would turn up a tweet or something where oh, they I, criticized I, I, I know those stories. Yeah, sure. exactly. Yeah. Um and so, uh, so you were forced to sort of rely on um, the same people who had sort of brought him into office, um, and even then, not uh, not all of those people. Um, and it just it 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 fed this like culture of division among the more establishment people and the uh, the folks who felt like they had been loyal for a long time. Um, that has sort of subsided. I, I think actually a lot of events over the last year or so have really sort of unified the White House in opposition to like common enemies. Uh-huh. Um, and it's, I mean, at the outset, the extremely like factional nature of it has sort of subsided, subsided a little bit. Um, who of these players would you say, because I've been arguing for two years now that the most remarkable do- you know, dynamic in Washington, at least on the right side of things, is that what you hear Republicans say in front of a camera versus what they say in private are just so distinct. You know, the number of senators who actually are all in MAGA people is very low, single digits. Uh, Number of congressmen is probably low teens, right? Um, um, That seems to be changing a little bit, sort of like what you're getting at there, but um, which bothers me a bit. But... um, um, in the White House itself, how many of these people? Because the you know one thing that comes clear in the book and in the interviews I've seen you guys do is that everybody's leaking, right? Everybody's pushing their own agenda to one extent or another. What share of the core White House staff actually has drunk the Kool Aid and thinks 
Trump is just the bomb that he's that that the 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 sizzle matches the steak that what he is putting out there as this guy who's like this great manager and all of the rest is the real Trump. I mean, how many people have drunk the Kool-Aid, would you say? Um, well, a lower so the the, the appeal I think f- for a lot of people who work for Trump is not so much Trump himself, it's like the their allegiance is opposition basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and the value they see in Trump is is simply in the people who oppose him. It's a vehicle for owning libs. Yeah, you basically. Got to yeah. own and well in a yeah. vehicle for like grievance. Um, and this idea that uh, you know, Republicans will never get a fair shake and so, you know, we might as well just go full, you know, full offensive against mm-hmm. the forces of you know, globalism or liberalism or against the media, against Nancy Pelosi. Whatever. Is Stephen Miller a true believer? Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. 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 He absolutely. And the cause or the man or both? Uh, the cause. Um, the cause. I mean, yeah. he, he preceded Trump as sort of an evangelist for this nationalist model of politics. And anyone who knew him when he was working for Jeff Sessions, I mean, he was considered like a pretty wonky, like policy heavy guy who did a lot of very sort of in-depth work on like welfare and immigration issues. Um, You know, you can disagree with him all you want and certainly many people do, but like he was actually a sort of intellectual um, predecessor or forefather to Trumpism Mm -hmm. and And was one of the few on the Hill really, a few, uh, I mean, he was working for a U.S. Senator um, and, uh, you know, was one of the few people who sort of understood this movement before anyone else seemed to. Right. Back when the um, uh, good chunk of the Republican establishment in Washington, D.C., including folks like John Boehner, were saying we, 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 immigration reform is inevitable. We got to drag these people, uh, uh, these knuckle draggers or however they would sort of chide them um, on the right, kicking and screaming to get this thing passed. It's going to happen. And you know what? At the end of the day, it'll probably be good for us uh, because it will take the you're racist for opposing uh, immigration talking points off the table or or whatever Mm -hmm. they were arguing at the time. Um, So it's not an exaggeration at all to say that during that moment during the Obama era, Stephen Miller operating behind the scenes while he was working on Capitol Hill, marshalling the dark forces of very aggressive conservative media on this issue and his allies who worked in that space actually was integral in uh, torpedoing that moment where it seemed for like a glimmer of a moment that Republicans could maybe get on board and help Obama and push this thing through. Right, torpedoing Marco Rubio's 2016 presidential campaign. Right, before it even started right, officially. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this guy was a player even back when nobody knew he was a player. And just like he is today, he was pretty widely hated, including in uh, a lot of Republican circles back then, for being um, uh, what they would determine as a weirdo or uh, an all-out racist or whatever. He does seem like an unpleasant sort. Um, Sure. And and I I mean, it seems weird to me at this point, if you're an honest broker, that you don't just openly label Stephen Miller as a racist. Like yeah. he's very clearly a person who's pursuing explicitly racist policy, consuming racist literature for racist ends and means. So what's what what's the problem? I think the minimal it, proposition you can have is that it is not worth your time trying to defend him of the charge. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, a good uh, chunk of the federal government expends considerable resources doing so. <laughs> okay, so um, so part of my meta thing on all of this is that. Um, 
I still, and I apologize, any listener who is still with us on this um, has heard me say this before, but I can respect the transactional case for Trump, right? You know, like not the owning the libs thing, which I think is dumb, like the idea that you're going to permanently damage the brand of conservatism, the Republican Party, just to own the libs. Um, You know, it's, it's, you know, it's taking a hammer to your own crotch as far as I'm concerned. But, um, you know, to get the judges, all that kind of stuff, which I think Mitch McConnell very wisely is not taking as much credit as he should because it's really Mitch McConnell who's doing it. Um, And, um, but put all that aside. Transactional case, tax cuts, yay, you know, uh, regulatory reform, yay, open up ANWR, yay, all that kind of stuff. What bothers me is, um, first of all, the people who are all in, but there are actually very, very few of them, right? The people who actually believe the... the I would argue there are more than you, th- you might think. Yeah, but um, um, I, t- I go around the country, I talk to a lot of conservatives, and when you talk to people in person... A lot of them who are definitely MAGA people, but they'll say, God, I wish, you know, sometimes he's his own worst enemy. I wish he'd stop with the tweeting, blah, 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 right? What drives me crazy is like, first of all, among the conservative commentariat, which I'm increasingly, you know, as the Amish would say, shunt. Um, well, you're a member of Antifa now. That's, <laughs> basically. That's your that's right. movement. I, okay. I hate America and all it stands for. Yeah. And, um, and I just won't let America be great. And, uh, the pro- my problem is is that you're not allowed to make the transactional case in public, right? You're basically, if you're of the sort of national greatness or American greatness crowd, right? Um, the Gorka crowd, never go full Gorka. Um, you have to um, make the maximalist case and you have to defend everything that he does on a daily basis, even though it might contradict some actual ideological or intellectual agenda that you might have, right? I mean, if you you can either pick a lane of supporting this sort of nationalist, MAGA, uh, America first, neo-isolation, whatever you want to, I don't care about the label, but right, but as long as it's a consistent ideological program, you can support that or you can support the man. And whenever forced to choose, whether it's Tucker Carlson, who, you know, goes out there and says that he, you know, he's all, he's not so much pro-Trump, but he's pro the people who voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. But whenever Trump's policies screw those people, Tucker takes the side of Trump, not those people. No one ever um, will allow for the fact that as a political day-to-day matter, sometimes Trump is his own worst enemy and his own cause's worst enemy. And that what they do is instead, they either go to the 30,000 foot level and defend things in theory, right? You know, like, I, well, look, Trump's against endless wars. Who's against? And they want to talk about things at some very high level of abstraction. Or they talk about, oh, I just trust his instincts. But they won't actually deal with the straight and narrow of the thing. And this is one of the things I think is so corrupted the the sort of conservative commentariat is, is you're not allowed to actually call it like you see it. Right. And you're not allowed to call what is clearly a bullshit piece of lie bullshit piece of lie when staring you right in the face in the sense of just to use one of myriad examples you just mentioned the endless war point trump is not actually against endless war we we can go down the list over and over and over again he escalated in afghanistan and then whines that the generals and his top aides aren't letting him he's uh taking the guardrails off uh, uh the pseudo guardrails that obama put on some of his drone war that has led to an uptick in civilian deaths we could go on and on he, he brought us to the brink of war with iran yada 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 um, so it's, it's just, um, a lot of it is wrapped up in what we call in the book, the autocratic game show personality cult right. that Trump has now enshrined the GOP, at least for this particular epoch. 
in. And when you're operating in that, it's harder for people in the conservative commentariat or wherever that you're talking about or, or Republican lawmakers when they go before the cameras on Capitol Hill to even lightly criticize the president. Um, I'm not saying that they weren't in lockstep besides, uh, behind someone like George W. Bush. But when you add this layer of personality cult onto it that Trump 150% has in a way that Bush and H.W. did not, you're going to have more problems with people speaking honestly. And that's not just a messaging thing. That will dramatically affect how policy is implemented that affects millions of people in this country and abroad. And it, uh, it, 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 when you go around the country and you're talking to uh, people who's like, gosh, I wish Trump would just stop tweeting so much. That's such low-hanging fruit, and that's the low-hanging fruit that Republican lawmakers always grab onto yeah. when they're asked about what they don't like about Trump. It's like you you don't get that the thing that is actually matters isn't necessarily the posting online, the shit posting that Trump does on a daily basis, but the actual policy and politics of the matter. It's like we're not asking you to denounce him in like 180 characters or whatever it is yeah. now. Yeah, but there's there's a larger there's a philosophical um, aspect of this beyond Trump, and that is, and as a roundabout way of answering this, um, I'm reminded of in like 2015 and 2016 when Trump first started uh, sort of ascending. There was a lot of you know in this weird insular tiny community of conservative media people, there was this really dumb debate about the late Andrew Breitbart. And would, you know, given the the prominence of the site that bears his name in promoting Trump, would Andrew Breitbart, the man, have been a Trump supporter? And, uh, you know, I tried to mostly stay out of this, but I had discussions with friends who also sort of came through conservative media. And my feeling was, of course, he would have been a Trump supporter. Of mm-hmm. course. Um, he presaged every sort of aspect of Donald Trump's uh, appeal. Um, and I was reminded of the, the hashtag slogan that... Both he and Bannon embraced he towards the end of his life and Bannon afterwards. Hashtag war. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be all capitals. Hashtag war. Um, and that is really emblematic of the mindset of a lot of Trump supporters in media um, in conservative media is that this is literally, literally, I think is fair, a war, a cold war. Not a violent war, but they all the conservatives are at war with the left, or at the very least, the left is at war with conservatives. And if you're not treating it that way, then you're you know it's just a matter of time until you're you're subsumed or defeated. When you're at war with someone, you can't brook any dissent or any you know ceding anything to the enemy. That's just anathema to the entire concept of war. Um, so if that's the literal approach that you are taking. Um, as I think it is with a lot of these sort of more hair on fire uh, conservative pundits, then it makes perfect sense that you would you would allow no dissent even on points where you might philosophically agree that Trump might be going too far or being counterproductive. You simply can't say that publicly because it's counterproductive to the war aims. Um, and the, the larger victory, the vanquishing of one's enemy is such an overriding objective and such, you know, that, that you simply can't allow it. I get that. What drives me crazy is the utter lack of introspection of the people who are making that case. And yeah, I, I like I run into this constantly. Yeah. Because if you if you slow down for two seconds, like Mark Hemingway had this piece for Real Clear Politics where he basically said, in no in you know, in, in convoluted terms, that people like me basically it's time for me to be purged from the ranks of punditry because mm-hmm. the last thing we need are 
quote, even though I don't use the term never Trump, never Trump pundits out there because they don't represent the people. And Larry O'Connor just did this thing for town hall. Uh, in fairness to Mark Hemingway, it's a lot dumber than Mark's argument, but it's it's still the basic argument of it. And it's funny, Media Matters is now doing the same argument, so it's kind of fun to see the singularity of mm. asininity approaching. And the the problem at its core with that argument is that, not to get all Burkean, but what they are in effect arguing is that pundits have to, at the end of the day, be flax for a party not a position or a point of view, right? Or at least be representative of a certain yeah, percentage of the American public. So I can guarantee you that, you know, like George Will, if you did a poll of Americans, <laughs> you know, he is not the people's pundit. That doesn't mean he doesn't have something interesting or important, something right. to say. Walter Lippmann, you go down a long list. This idea that somehow all of political punditry and commentary is supposed to be with each warring faction choosing their champions to fight in the, you know, in the fighting pits of Marine or something and not actually, you know, so, and so the result is, is that what they're basically telling me is I have to lie, is that I have to stop saying things as I see them and instead represent the point of view of the people who are tuning in for a certain kind of political entertainment. I mean, it's everywhere now. You, it's because you haven't bought into the business model that pervades the entirety of pro-Trump conservative media, that's, that's which is right, yeah. like lie to your audience whenever it's convenient. Tell them and what the fan service is the way I call it. They tell them what they want to hear. Sure, totally. And I, I'm sympathetic to the idea of, okay, we should have more in elite punditry that does reflect a broader swath of the American people. So the people reading it who may not agree with that understand more about what's actually going on. Yeah, no with problem with different it, points of view. Right, in, yeah, yeah. in the sense of I agree with people when they're like, the New York Times editorial board, if you actually want a conservative, why don't why haven't you hired at least one pro-Trump voice? Like, I, I get that, and I do agree with that. But what I also find funny about someone like Mark Hemingway making that argument to you is that go back and read Mark Hemingway's position from 2015 and back. Do you think his form of conservatism represented... Most of the American electorate or, or most of the uh, conservative leading part of the yeah, well, like, electorate. I mean, like, like as we've shown time and time again, if that were true, based on polling and data we have, then all of these people who worked for National Review or the Weekly Standard or Breitbart would have been way more economically left-leaning uh -huh. during the Obama era than they were. But yeah. No, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, and I feel bad singling out Mark Hemingway because I really do like the guy and I've known him for 20 years, but... The, you know, Mark was anti-Trump. He voted for Evan McMullen. Uh, um, his wife was anti-Trump. Um, all these people. Now, I'm not doubting their sincerity, but they changed their position and by doing so became much more prominent, or at least Molly did, much more prominent voice on the right. Mm -hmm. Fine. But since I haven't been persuaded the way Molly has been, that... Donald Trump is this glorious world historical figure who is owning the libs and owning history and all the rest. And gutting the deep state. And gutting the deep state and draining the swamp and all of these things. That Because I haven't been persuaded by that, that therefore um, my point of view is no longer needed. I just find it a weird argument. Obviously, I find it, you know, it, the, the, one of the reasons why it vexes me, and getting back to the subject of this book, 
is that all of these people, I mean, leave the Hemingways out of it, you know, but just all these people writ large, the pro-Trump MAGA crowd has somehow convinced itself that the never-Trumpers, to use their term again, I don't really use the term, that we're doing it to cash in, right? Well, meanwhile, the pro-Trumpers have made bags of cash. I mean, the idea that Seb Gorka isn't a remora stuck to the side of Donald Trump is so laughable to me. And um, which brings us to Gorka. <laughs> so there's this guy, what's his name, Nicholas? Uh, Paul Hollywood. Paul Hollywood. Uh, who's one of the judges on the Great British Baking Show. And he sounds like Gorka to me. And it's one of the only things that ruins this otherwise utterly innocuous cooking I would show. highly recommend you check out the comedian James Adomian's Gorka impression. Okay. One of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. Ha 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 Mr. Chapo. Greetings. It is I, Dr. Gorka. Ha 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 ha. Um, I, so... Tell us about interacting with Gorka. Tell us. <laughs> yeah, about... so the, we actually, uh, I think the first story we co bylined at the Daily Beast was about Gorka. And of course, he was this um, bombastic, kind of larger than life uh, character who didn't really have much in the way of official duties at the White House, but was technically, you know, a national security advisor of some sort, um, despite not having a security clearance initially. Um, and because he wasn't really doing anything, he was just hanging around like the White House mess. Um, pretty quickly, the White House uh, decided they were going to try to place him elsewhere. So we got wind of that um, from one of the agencies where uh, where they were looking to place him, and the you know the initial source on it going, you know, Jesus Christ, you need to get this out there because if if I have to deal with Gorka, you know, I'm going to go crazy. Um, so we reported on that naturally reached out to Gorka for comment and he uh, politely declined um, and it was the last time we had a polite interaction with him and yeah we I mean we had so much fun with it and he was such a hilarious character that we uh, we decided to sort of stay on it and wrote a few more stories about uh-huh. him that very much upset him um, and yeah has he challenged you to a duel <laughs> not in so many words Um not even a debate, actually, now that I think of it. He just, he's, he's kind of very dismissive. And, uh, you know, we, we actually have, I think we blurbed the book with like him accusing me of having a cocaine habit and uh-huh. Swin of having no moral center. And he was praying for Swin's soul. And so, like, that was the nature of most of our interactions with him. Because, um, true story, um, you know, getting on to the thing I was ranting about before, he apparently said on his radio show a couple months ago that I lost potentially millions of dollars in Jeb Bush contracts because I was a Trump or something. I had no idea what he's talking about. But anyway, uh, the the thing I was going to say is uh, I, I don't want to out my friend, um, but a fellow Fox News contributor and columnist was at um, Fox one night and Gorka confronted him. Mm. Gorka. And uh, said... Uh, how disappointed he was in something I had said and like thinking that guy was me (laughs) and saying how I want to challenge you to a duel. No way. And, um, wait, yes, I'll tell you the name afterwards, but, uh, and, 
And so this friend of mine texts me immediately afterwards. Says, Did you write something about Seb Gorka? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, okay, well, he thinks you're me or I'm here. I'm you. And he just challenged me to a duel over it. And I was like, I'll be like your second. Pistols, you know? at, <laughs> pistols at dawn kind of well, duel? Yeah, like that... what? <laughs> Lachlan, call, call your best friend Seb and see what he means. By that. <laughs> yeah. I, I need to figure out what. You know, it's funny because coming from the Washington Free Beacon, which, of course, is very much of, like, the neocon mm-hmm. arm of the conservative movement, there was a lot of overlap. You know, I have a lot of, like, mutual friends with Gorka. Uh-huh. And I don't think I, – I think there is nobody in Trump world who I lost more friendly acquaintances with uh, than – Because of losing uh, – because, because of writing Gorka? because of writing unfriendly things about, about – Really? About Gorka. That's fascinating to me. Well, and, and part of it was the flippant way that we would write about him. Because, well, uh, to talk about the car. Yeah, well, he would do these ridiculous things like, of course, as I'm sure you know, he drives this absurd Mustang. Four-cylinder um, Mustang. Four, yeah, the, art the of War boost, Yeah, right. Art of War license. <laughs> Not even like, of Art War. Yeah, Art <laughs> War, and it's the, the Don't Tread on Me Virginia license plates, the Gadsden flag. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's immediately recognizable. And through, like, the first six months of the administration, people would see this car around town, and they would tweet out photos of it, and apparently the guy can't park. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and it was just hysterical. Like, he parked and, on the sidewalk at least one well, time, that was right? the one that yeah. really set people off. Uh, <laughs> and I wrote this, you know, 150, 200-word thing for the Daily Beast, Seb Gorka parks on sidewalk, walks away, or something like that, <laughs> <laughs> where I noted his, uh, you know, less-than-manly uh, Mustang model. Uh-huh. Um, um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I was just like making fun of the guy and just, I mean, former acquaintances in like the national security space, you know, very much of the Gorko, Frank Gaffney sort of world. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but who I was on good terms with, um, you know, just, they were having none of it blocking me on Twitter and et cetera. I showed up to a party with Lachlan shortly after he posted that, uh-huh. um, and there was one or two of those guys who he's referring to who was at the party. You could cut the tension in the room with a knife. They see what Lachlan walk in and they're like. Oh, this traitor. <laughs> how how could he be so nasty and unfair and to our the, uh, God King? An interesting <laughs> thing about the, our, the dynamic of us writing together about the Trump administration is they distrust me, conservative movement person, yeah, yeah, yeah. way more than they distrust him, you know, uh-huh. raving leftist. Um, the apostasy, as I'm sure you've experienced, yeah, yeah, yeah. is way bigger of a sin than having been a you know Maoist from the beginning. As this right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they don't expect anything from. That's right. It. It's That's like, right. and you're going to put them in camps. They know it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Not if they I'm, get you in camps first. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. It, it's funny because, like, if you work at a place like thedailybeast.com, you have the benefit of being able to not lie to both the reader. And the administration and your sources about who you are. Sure. And I'm not walking into any meeting with any senior administration official saying, I'm just the facts man down the middle. You can talk to me. I don't vote or or any of that bullshit that people put on who work at, like, the Associated Press or wherever. I'm not shitting on the Associated Press. But you know what I mean. Different lanes. I mean, there's – I've always argued that opinion journalism is often the best kind of journalism – when it's good, because bad opinion journalism is the worst kind of journalism, right. but when you're clear about what your motives and your biases are to the reader, and you try to make an argument where you are f- clear to the reader where you are coming from, and you're trying to persuade them about something, right. that is often the best kind of journalism. I, I always tell uh, people that my perspective on political media is having a perspective is fine, and oftentimes great. Sure. There's a difference between having a perspective and having an agenda. Right. 
I'm not an operative. I'm not a party activist. I, I don't play for a team, even though you can probably guess which candidate right now is more in line with my ideological leanings. Of course, Donald J. Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, the, it's This is a very dispatchy kind of pricey here. But yeah, no, I'm with you. Yeah, 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 it's like you're, you're still, you're not playing for anybody's team in the same right. way that if even I, as a reporter from the left, if I something, if I came across something that was a great scoop in the public interest, but made Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or whoever look like shit, Obviously, you run it, and it doesn't matter where where you work. You know, this was actually, and it goes back to something you were saying earlier about um, sort of how you're treated now in conservative media um, and the idea of having to represent some sort of constituency as a pundit. Um, I kind of, you know, after 2016, I didn't really make a secret of my distaste for Donald Trump during the campaign, despite uh, still having been a registered Republican at the time. Um, I it, it sort of freed me. It was liberating in the sense that I realized just how unpopular my vision (laughs) of the country and the Republican Party was. Um, And so I didn't have to bother trying to... I I decided I wasn't going to bother trying to convince people Mm -hmm. that I was right anymore because obviously it wasn't working. And that... uh, It was liberating in the sense that I was then free to... When I wasn't... When the impetus for my journalism wasn't some sort of ideological crusade, that's an unfriendly uh, way to put it, but... Um, I was free to just pursue stories that I thought were fun and interesting and compelling. Um, And obviously, it's much more fun to write skeptically or adversarially about whoever is in power at a given moment. So, um, you know, a lot of my conservative friends sort of mistook that for a, uh, you know, wholesale sort of flip-flop in my politics. But Mm -hmm. that really wasn't the case. I had just sort of divorced my politics from my writing. So Yeah, no, the way I always put it is that 2016 forced a lot of people on the right, left, you're going to have your problems with Bernie now. Um, uh, like I wore a lot of different, my standard analogy on this is, I used to wear a lot of different hats. Yeah. Conservative egghead guy, intellectual history guy, pundit guy. Simpsons aficionado. S- Simpsons aficionado, all of these kinds of things. And one of them was party guy, right? And I don't mean like, you know, white bag and hookers. I just mean like, <laughs> uh, I was a GOP guy to the sense that that was the team I rooted for. And with a, you know, and there were some exceptions. There were some moments in the Bush administration where, I think, and I wrote it at the time that we became too much of a rah rah thing for Bush rather than sticking to the conservative stuff. But there were never in any great existential tension. And what 2016 required was that basically everybody on the right, at least on the media side, um, they had to take off. They had to decide what was the one hat they weren't going to take off, and. A bunch of them, it turned out that the one hat they weren't going to take off was party guy. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, and I'm, I always cite Hugh Hewitt on this because he admitted it on air in a conversation with me. He was like, look, at the end of the day, I'm a party guy. Bill Bennett, at the end of the day, was a party guy. Lots of these guys, they just owned it. And, like, for me, the party thing was one of the least important parts of my stacked identity. And the more important stuff was, like, conservative philosophy or you know, whatever, a non-part, I, I don't like political enthusiasm to begin with. Um, and so um, it wasn't hard for me to take off the party hat, but it was shocking to a lot of people that I would. And that's that's the thing that is still amazing to me is how many people are mad at me for not living down to their expectations. Hmm. Um, anyway, I, not a, enough about me. Yeah, I mean, um, I, th- I thought the cool thing about being in political media is that you're not subservient to a party. You can be as gung-ho ideologically as you want, but that's different than throwing right. in your lot with an actual established 
uh, political party. And not to kiss up to you too much on air, but one of the things I do appreciate about your uh, media position in the Trump era is as violently, as I'm sure you know I disagree with you probably sure. about like 98 to 99% of what you believe. You'll come around. Uh, nah, nah. nah. <laughs> um, it's, uh, I, you, you are still clearly conservative and doctrinaire in the ways you think and analyze about politics and policy, whereas there are a lot of these quote-unquote never-Trump media people who it's indistinguishable from being a centrist Democrat. Oh, I agree with that entirely. And, and that annoys me because it's like, then it's a grift. That's what yeah, I yeah. think some of the MAGA people are talking about because it's like, wait a minute, you didn't have a coming out column saying that, oh, I'm a lib now. Right. And if you're trying to still sell yourself a conservative, what is the difference between you and the Rachel Maddow show? Yeah, no, and look, and look the fact that the, to- the Washington Post still calls Jen Rubin mm. A conservative yeah, or Max Boot, or you know, whatever. Well, at least Max Boot did have a coming out column, yeah, okay, being like my I, stuff my, has changed. My problem with Max but, Bo- Max Boot's, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, donning of the dunce cap and being paraded around, you know, the Imperial City <laughs> or whatever, is that uh, he basically admitted that in a at book length. That oh, I never really looked at these issues closely myself. I just trusted other people. And right, what the hell, man? <laughs> like, like, and look, I, I do some of that. Like, I, I do. I cannot understand Federal Reserve policy. Just mm. my brain doesn't do it. Like velocity of money, and I want to like mm. start going on a killing spree. <laughs> and so there are people I ask about that stuff. But I also don't write about Federal Reserve policy very much, precisely because I don't understand it at all. Yeah. And but you know, so look, fine. Max has his thing, and Jen Rubin, I think, is just basically. Or a lot of people are just trial lawyers. Mm-hmm. And the second they lock on to defending a client, they just always go with the best argument they can. Right, right. Like the, the two people you're talking about in particular, when they came out in favor of the Iran deal, yeah. I was like, "What the hell <laughs> is happening?" You know, it, uh, come on. Yeah, it it is funny though to see folks who you know of the quote unquote never Trump right, many of whom actually associate themselves with that label. Um, now, now sort of, uh, working the ar- as armchair strategist for Democrats in their yeah. nominating contest saying, well, you know, if you nominate Bernie Sanders, you're in trouble. Um, it's, I mean, for all the reasons that are just so patently obvious, it's, it's kind of amusing to watch the reaction from, you know, progressives from Sanders supporters just saying like, I'm sorry, you know, who the hell are you? You just got here six months ago and you're going to tell us how to run our party anyway. And you lost four years. Okay, well, right. so let's, 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 let's turn to some some predictive punditry here. Sure. And I'm not going to ask you who's going to win Hooper Tuesday or anything like that because thank God, life's too short. Um, but so we've described in ample detail here how so many people on the right uh, either – for economic incentive or groupthink or permission structure or sincere conversion process, all things are possible, eventually came around to be essentially MAGA people. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that many of your colleagues at the Daily Beast or friends at places like MSNBC and CNN, should Bernie Sanders become president of the United States, um, will all of a sudden be uh, social Democrats? I think that, um, again, in the same way that I said, because Trump is a Republican and Republican supporters and voters go for Republican presidents, and especially if you have a Republican Congress, then it's basically baked in whatever the quibbles they have about the tweets or the tone or what have you. Um, Because Bernie Sanders, if he is elected, will be a Democratic president, um, yes, he will have 
uh, disagreements with someone like Chuck Schumer or other heavy hitters in the Democratic policy when it comes to uh, Israel policy or stuff like that. But so did Barack Obama. Sure. At the end of the day, if he's a Democratic president, the party apparatus will rally around him, especially in the face of what they see as a revanchist right. But, so, but, well, Eugene Robinson or I'm just trying to think of classic sort of mainstream sort of conventional liberal columnists. Will they um, uh, all of a sudden be for seizing the means of production or you know, you know what collectivizing I think agriculture do. or whatever it is that Bernie's for? <laughs> I think there's going to be a lot of parallels to the um, you know sort of road to Damascus Trump right. Yeah. In that um, a lot of folks who you might not otherwise think of as pro Bernie Sanders people will revert to this oppositional form of punditry and will instead focus on the evil Republicans and talk radio. Be like anti-anti-Bernie. Exactly. Right? Which exactly. is the gateway drug to pro-Trump. Well, it's, it, it's Trump. effectively pro-Trump. Yeah. Um, and it's, it would be effectively pro-Bernie in right. that case. But it's it's much easier, I think, to, you know, you don't have to defend policies if you're just attacking the other guy's policies. So... Um, that's always easier, and that'll be a safe fallback for the Eugene Robinsons of the world. Right. And once he, a Democrat, even if it is Bernie Sanders, gets into the Oval Office, even if they, and by they I mean a, a big chunk of liberals and professional liberals in the country disagree with his prescriptions, no pun intended, on things like Medicare for all, whatever, he's inevitably going to do like like upwards of 90% of what he does as president just by virtue of being a, a Democrat or a Democrat by the time he you know, mm-hmm. is elected, if he's elected, will do upwards of 90% of what they like. So at the end of the day, they, there'll be disagreements at the margins. And right now it seems incredibly blown up because we're in the heat of Democratic primary right now in the same way that it felt massive, the chasm between Trump and other Republicans during the 20, 2015 and the 2016 primary. But you know what it I, gets reconciled. I think finds one actually really, I, I hadn't even thought of this until just now, but one really interesting thing in a Bernie administration would be, you know, Bernie is very much a man of like the old left, mm-hmm. the like class struggle left, mm-hmm. not of the modern sort of woke left. Yeah, he's class, not race. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's a very contentious divide. You would know better than I would, but that's the impression I get uh, on the left these days. So, you know, I do wonder if, you know, his, I don't think his administration would prioritize the types of sort of intersectional based politics that a lot of sort of young, probably many of his supporters prize right now. And I do wonder if that would be a source of tension in a Bernie administration. Anyway, just a thought that came to mind. Yeah. Um, all right. So I want to ask one last question related to the book. Um Oh yeah, we got we got plug it aggressively to your listeners, right? Yes, now. that's right. Buy the um, book, please. Buy the book. It's 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 a great book. It's great beach reading. It's great airplane reading. Um, it reads fast. Um, people will love it. Uh, but of the Mount Rushmore plus of Trumpistas, right? Um, who's made the most money? Not counting. Don Jr. in that crowd, right? I mean, not the family itself. Mm-hmm. Who is it? Uh, you know, is it is it Reince Priebus? Is it is it Spicer? Is it Corey? Is it the Schlaps? Like, give me a hierarchy of of monetization. Um, let's start with uh, your best man at your wedding, Lachlan uh, David Urban. Yeah, um, yeah, Urban's this weird breed that you know he was a uh, he runs a lobbying firm. 
Um, but he was a pretty powerful Republican operative and lobbyist beforehand. Um, he ran the Pennsylvania operation. Right. For, he yeah. basically won Pennsylvania for Trump and ingratiated himself such that, um, you know, his lobbying practices really exploded. I couldn't give you a number on how much he's making, certainly not how much more he's making now than he was before Trump. But yeah, I mean, that's a great example of someone who, I mean, he's the first to admit if you talk to him that like he's a total swamp creature. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, he, he, he does it. He plays by the rules and, uh, you know, he's very upfront about it. And he's a nice guy. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, he's certainly he's certainly made a buck. Um, I think folks like I mean, Lewandowski is a great example. Um, David Bossy, uh, you know, the 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 folks who. Oh, uh, oh, uh, Tom Fitton, I think, is a great uh-huh. example. Uh-huh. People who there are a lot of folks who were really big um in, you know, like the Clinton years, they had like established these institutions that hadn't really changed much in the ensuing years and all of a sudden sort of became, I guess, with the, the you know, re, resurgence of Hillary Clinton became like key pillars of the institutional right once again. Um, I think Judicial Watch is a great example of that. Uh, Jay Sekulow at American Center for Law and Justice. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so so there's there's a whole universe of people there who I think are doing pretty well, and not in terms of monetary gain necessarily, although that certainly is a component. I would argue that some people who definitely end up on that Trumpian rush, uh, Mount Rushmore, are uh, media figures such as Lou Dobbs, mm-hmm. who yes, he had his uh, uh, well-rated enough perch at Fox Business uh, before Trump and Trumpism came along in the form that they did, but. You cannot understand uh, the era of Trump without going first through Lou Dobbs, yeah, yeah, yeah. which sounds sort of like an insane thing to say. But he really was an originator of much of the birther and uh, anti-immigration, not just an- illegal immigration, but legal immigration, um, nationalist messaging that really did become uh, uh, one in the same with Trumpism soon after that. And it got it got to the point, as we've uh, write about rather graphically in in uh, the book, Sinking in the Swamp, that Lou Dobbs eleve- managed to get elevated to a point of actual presidential advisor. Mm-hmm. He doesn't work in the White House, of course. He's not a federal employee. But uh, there are scenes in the book where uh, Trump huddles with his uh, cabinet-level secretaries and senior uh, officials in the West Wing. He brings them into the Oval Office to talk about trade policy or immigration policy, like really dramatic, um, 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 high stakes discussions on like what direction to take the country. And suddenly, they Trump will sort of cut off the conversation for a moment to say, "Hey, Lou, can you jump in here for a moment?" <laughs> and Lou Dobbs is on fucking speakerphone <laughs> on the Resolute desk, chiming in. To, to basically tell Steve Mnuchin or whoever else what's what about X, Y, and Z policy. Um, he speaks to the president fairly regularly, mm-hmm. privately, and on the phone. And he actually does, and, and Trump so values what he says, not just on rhetoric but on policy, that his advice to leader of the free world, Donald J. Trump, really does make a concrete difference. This mm-hmm. is true of uh, Fox and Friends weekend co-host Pete Hegseth, who yeah. was instrumental in getting clemency for- A war criminal. Yeah, for accused and convicted war c- criminals who Trump late last year with a flick of pen was like, you guys are great. 
you're absolved. Yeah, come Take join care. me on the campaign trail. That's right, when I, if you can. And the um, so this quarterly of uh, conservative media people who just you know Rubio administration or Ted Cruz administration or Jeb Bush administration would not have anywhere this level of mm-hmm. direct influence to the leader of the free world and his top lieutenants of the administration is yeah, just I, I completely... Imagine, I try to imagine Barack Obama like putting Rachel Maddow on speakerphone in the right. Oval Office. You know, it's just, you can't... Right, or putting her on the National Security Council <laughs> or something like that. It's just, there, there, there is no one-to-one comparison with Barack right. o, 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 the prior administration on this point. And also even uh, people like Diamond and Silk, Fox Nation mm-hmm. stars, who make their whole point about how we're black but and former Democrats, but we love Donald Trump. He's the breast best president African-Americans have ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's their whole, like, pop culture kind of wacky, zany shtick. Um, uh, Trump loves these women. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not putting them on speakerphone during Oval Office discussions, at least not what I've seen, the same way that he is with the Lou Dobbs or someone else. But he, he uh, uh, will seek them out if he sees them at private events at the White House. He'll invite them to various things. And he will talk to senior officials in the White House numerous times over the past three years or so about, oh, did you catch that thing Diamond and Silk said (laughs) on on the morning show on Fox News? Like, they do occupy space in the leader of the free world's head Uh in a way where... Um, he, they are at the very least a pop cultural fixation for the president of the United States. Again, for whatever nasty words I may have to say about Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio, I do not think that that would be happening. I think that's fair. If they were elected leader of the free world. All right, I want to get back to that in just a second. But, um, you know, if you don't have the ability to monetize your access to the president and you need to get a um, positive cash flow for your business, one of the places you can go to is Blue Vine. Running a business is enough of a challenge. Securing extra cash flow doesn't have to be. Through Bluevine, getting a line of credit is fast, easy, and simple. Bluevine is an easy, fast way to help support your business growth with a line of credit of up to $250,000. Whether you need money to offset upfront costs, secure inventory, or pay an ex- unexpected expense, through Bluevine, you can help yourself and your business stay secure for any reason. There's no fee to set up your line of credit, and Bluevine never charges maintenance or prepayment fees. Applying is easy. Just go online to getbluevine.com slash dingo. Fill out a few simple details, and you're done with your application within a few minutes. Seeing an offer will not affect your credit score. For listeners of the show, Bluevine is offering a special limited-time promotion of a $100 gift card when you take out a loan or open a line of credit with Bluevine. Go to getbluevine.com slash dingo. That's getbluevine.com slash dingo for more details. All you have to do is go to getbluevine.com slash dingo and apply. That's a quick, easy, and meaningful way to help you and your business in as little as 24 hours. This promotional offer is subject to terms and conditions that can be found at getbluevine.com slash dingo. So, again, so I, I, we got to close this out because I know you guys got to get on the road um, to promote your book and churn up even more massive sales. Um, <laughs> but, um, so one of, again, one of the things... I like about the book is that my great frustration is is 
people want to talk about Trump in the abstract rather than the reality of Trump. And so they want to talk about, don't you want to drain the swamp? And I say, yeah, sure. That's not happening, right? Um, they want to talk about him being this this hands-on manager who's thinking 10 moves ahead. You know, they want to talk about, you know, a mythical version of the guy rather than reality. And the reality is it's a really grubby scene. <laughs> um, and um, so let's just close with, like, with, with this, this point, right? So the thing... I think it's fair to say that the people like Mattis and Tillerson and McMaster and Kelly, whatever criticism you might have of them one way or the other, they were basically circuit breakers, right, for Trump. Is that when the true crazy current came down the the wire, they were like, flip, nope, let's just stop this here, right? And they're gone and they're not coming back. I, yeah. So what does a second Trump term look like? Does Bannon come back? Does Corey come back? Um, is is it just going to be four more years that we've just seen, or is it really going to be Trump unchained? What do you think? What do you guys think? Diamond and silk on the domestic policy council. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's funny. When we were first sort of approached to possibly write a book about the Trump era, what you just, just described was basically the pitch that was suggested to us was the adults in the room. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I think that was a working title at one point. Um, and it, we, I mean, we quickly decided we couldn't do it because they'd all the, left the premise. Well, the premise of our reporting was basically that either there are no adults in the room or the ones that are there don't matter and aren't keeping this on the rails at all. Right. Um, and certainly, I mean, <laughs> uh, things, you know, as those, I would argue that the white house is less crazy now in terms of its internal operations than it was when all these adults were still there. It was total chaos when Tillis and McMaster and and Tillerson and all these guys were in the administration. So I don't really think they they did act as a circuit breaker. They tried. They had that reputation, but like they weren't able to keep this thing on the rails at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that I mean we've moved. You know, a lot of like the RNC folks that were there at the beginning have left or been fired. Um, there's been this sort of consolidation and and um, increasing sort of effort to oust people who are seen as disloyal or as leakers. That's only obviously intensified over the last couple months. And I think a, a President Donald Trump staffing up his second term administration is going to look very different than the, it did in 2017. And it's going to look much more like Donald Trump and the uh, sort of pundits and hangers on and lobbyists and whoever that we sort of associate with him and that sort of uh, define his worst instincts and most detrimental effect on the political process. So it's only so th- my point is there were never any adults in the room, but like it's only moving in one direction and it's not moving towards like something good. Mm-hmm. So cosine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the book is Sinking the Sw- Sinking in the Swamp: How Trump's Minions and Misfits Poisoned Washington by Lachlan Marquet and Swin. <laughs> Just sw- like share. Okay. I think you should go for that. Uh, <laughs> hey guys, thanks very much for coming on. Really Thank appreciate you. it. Our pleasure. Susbang, 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 subsang. That's what he said. Subsang. I really apologize. It's I am not trying to be racist or condescending or anything like that, you know, and I, I keep wanting to make a reference to uh, um, the first Meet the Fockers movie or what was that? Meet the Parents movie where Ben Stiller just goes, talk tie. 
Yes, Jack Jack can talk Thai. I can't talk Thai. So, but anyway, um, what'd you think of all that? I thought it was kind of cool. Like, I kind of like the idea of basically a gossip book, which is kind of a big part of what it seems like, which, which I think is really great for people who maybe don't know as much about the inner workings of, like, the gross people in the administration in D.C. I don't know. I think it's a cool idea. I, I also found it interesting what Swin was saying, because one of the things he said kind of counteracts, like, one of the early things that you've all said on the podcast, actually, which was that the thing that surprised him most about coming to D.C. was just how most people didn't know what the hell they were doing. Mm -hmm. Whereas I kind of find it interesting. He basically implied sort of the opposite, which is that most of the people, as a, as a default, you can assume that they're lying, you know, kind of crony style, you know, people in the employee of people in power, essentially. And those two things don't quite gel. And I kind of find that interesting how... Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I don't want to speak for Yuval, but I, I think what he would say is that there's sort of two different things going on there. Um, what he was talking about where nobody knows what they're doing is that government is so big, sprawling, and complex, the politics are so diffuse and unpredictable that this idea that you can carry out an initiative from conception to execution according to a rational plan, um, sort of as what Michael Oakshot would say, as the crow flies, uh, you know, politics as the crow flies, mm. that you can't do that. That it turns out that everything's sort of a big contest and negotiation and a conversation and all of the rest, and that you put out a press release and you, you try to stick to a theme. What these guys are kind of talking about is that a lot of these guys, a lot of the people in the, in, in the Trump orbit are just in it for themselves. Hmm. And if you have a much narrower ambition of separating people from checks <laughs> and selling influence, you can actually uh, know what you're doing pretty, pretty well. Right. Um, anyway, that's how I would reconcile those those things. Right. Um, but no, again, the reason I like the book is, you know, it's a little, uh, it's a little too irreverent. I mean, I think you could do it a little less not quite hunter s thompson kind of style but it's fun it's definitely fun to read and it's got a lot of interesting stuff and it's definitely reported which is you know my new interest these days but it's it's in sort of the classic sort of muckraking style of actually showing not the 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 sort of potemkin facade that everyone wants to argue about mm -hmm. um this isn't sort of i mean like even if you believe that Donald Trump is a fascist, right, which I'm not saying he is, but, like, real fascists had plans, you know, and they had skill sets that allowed them to implement policies in ways that, you know, uh, had effects and like stuff. And the trains run on time. Yeah, even though there's some revisionist history that says the trains actually didn't do that well. But, um, oh. um, but the, the, the reality is that the Trump administration is just this... It's not a movable feast. It's like a movable TV dinner in front of Lou Dobbs, you know. <laughs> and um, speaking of the Hemingways, the yeah, <laughs> um, different Hemingway. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, so I just I think you know it's a nice counter. Uh, it's a nice corrective to um, what we've uh, had so far from a steady stream of books. Um, okay, we have actually literally someone knocking on the studio door. Um, so we're gonna have to call it short there. Um, thanks to everybody for subscribing. Please review us all the rest. Um, you know, the whole deal and I'll see you next time.
you want this podcast. <laughs>